0: No, oh, we are glad you're here this morning. I, I appreciated the worship this morning, at, at least as we opened, because I woke up this morning with a song in my head that I'm not particularly proud of um, by uh, Culture Club. Boy George, I don't know if you guys remember him or not, but the song Karma, Karma, Karma Chameleon was rolling around in my head and I couldn't get rid of it. And uh, even as we came in this morning, as I was trying to pray and just prepare and be ready this morning, that song was rolling around in my head, and I just couldn't get rid of it. So I appreciate you guys uh, helping me. It was was good. Um, Last week, we started into a series called This Jesus, and the intent is to build in us a biblical view of what the early believers thought about Jesus, what they proclaimed about Jesus, what they were teaching, what they particularly themselves believed And uh, what they were proclaiming to others The importance of this is really built out of I mean, it's built out of this need for us to understand it And you you might think, well, hey, I understand plenty about Jesus You know, why why more? Um, The greatest pursuit we can have in our life The greatest thing that we can pursue in our life Is striving to understand and know Jesus more more deeply, more intimately, have a, have a greater understanding of the work that he did, who he was that enabled him to do the work that he did. Uh, and in the day and age when men like Marcus Borg can sell books by the thousands on websites like Amazon, it's especially important. Marcus Borg wrote a book about Jesus' life, his relevance, his works, his, his, uh, his teachings, the problem is that Marcus Borg is involved in a group called Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar, what they were all about was taking a look at all of the teachings of Christ and deciding which ones they were going to accept and which ones they were going to deny. So what they did was this, this group of 150 men, some Bible scholars, in quotes. I don't know that they were really Bible scholars, but that's what they claimed to themselves. And some just laymen, people, men in the, in the church who had been studying... They get together, and they start looking at the teachings of Jesus, his miracles, his different works that he did, and they begin to decide, based on a vote, on a democratic process, what they decide Jesus taught or really said or didn't say or didn't do. Essentially, what they were doing was they had these colored beads, and they would cast a vote by these colored beads. And so they built this new view of Jesus, and they disregarded what's historically been taught through the church So this view of Jesus They developed uh, they, they developed this view of Jesus That he was a Hellenistic Jew Meaning that he was a Greek speaking Jew That's not what we've ever thought of Jesus I mean everybody believes that he spoke Aramaic And as he spoke I mean that's the language he, he spoke in um, Not a Hellenist But he was born in Nazareth Of the line of David So he was a Jew-ish Jew You know he was, he was the real deal um, but they also say that he was a sage or just a, a, a wise teacher. That he was, that his, his teaching, he taught about the liberation from injustice. That that was his mission, was to bring liberation from injustice. They denied all of his natural miracles. You know, they, they believed that he was a faith healer, like he would actually heal people. But they denied things like him standing up in the boat when the disciples were in the boat with him and they were scared and, and they thought they were going to die They denied that he stood up and he calmed the sea and the wind And everything went peaceful They denied that he had the power to do that They also denied that he died his substitutionary death on the cross And they deny his resurrection Well, we don't believe any of that, right? I mean, we, do, do we really need to learn about Jesus because of Marcus Borg? Well I don't want to specifically say that there's anybody in the room with this struggle, but I hope that we can prevent people in the room from having this struggle. Because as I searched on Amazon, I went to Amazon and I typed in Jesus. His was the first book that popped up. First in the line. And I don't know about you, but at least when I search the internet, especially when I'm searching and looking for something, I don't usually flip a page. You know, when I go to Google, I look at the first few websites that are on the page. I almost never go to the second page unless I don't find what I'm looking for. But if I find something that that is satisfactory or meets the criteria, then I'll start clicking on it and looking at it. And what my concern is is that we live in a culture that generally is biblically illiterate, meaning that we rest more on books that we've read about the Bible or the things that our parents taught us or the things that we learned in Sunday school than what we've read for ourselves in the Word of God. Now, in the Reformation, you know, this was a big problem for them because the the Catholic Church, they were scared for the Word of God to become published in a way that that everybody could have it. Because if you publish it, then everybody's going to have their own view and they're going to be looking at it, not recognizing the power of God to teach His people His truth. But today, with the Bible being so, so readily available to us, so easy to get our hands on, We live in a culture that's more willing to accept what's taught about the Bible than to really spend time learning it ourselves. And so I felt convicted as we were working through Acts and as I began to deal with this and just work it out in my own thoughts and the ways I perceived and approached things that we would start this series. Because I, I, I think it's ultimately the most important thing we can do. Not just to learn principles about how to live life, but to learn about the truth about who gives us life to learn the truth about our savior jesus christ last week as we did that as we started into the series um we set up this uh, well we didn't set it up but we looked at the very first gospel message that peter ever preached he stands up in the middle of a crowd who is being somewhat antagonistic to towards these people who have just received the holy spirit and this miracle is being performed through them and he stands up and he proclaims a message and he presents to them that Jesus is not only man, but he's also God. From the very first message that was being proclaimed, they were proclaiming his humanity and his divinity. This is, this is a, a, a trait or a, an issue that is constantly, constantly trying to be, people are trying to undermine it. People have no problem recognizing the historical man of Jesus, but they're, they're constantly trying to, trying to pull away from his divinity. And then there's those that are, are all about, oh, Jesus was God, but he wasn't really man, and they try to whitewash this image. But we can see in the Scripture, even as Peter taught, the very first message, the very first proclamation of the gospel was that Jesus was truly God, he's truly man. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth, this, this man who was born is the Lord. He's God and man. And I reiterate that today because ultimately it's out of that view, it's out of that position, it's out of that foundational, essential truth that every other view of Jesus makes sense. If you take away this truth, if you take away this essential truth, this this central doctrine of who Jesus is, then everything else falls apart. And so today as we build on that, as we move through his Into another one of his sermons We're going to build on that idea We're going to build on the truth The teaching That Jesus was God Come in flesh Fully man and fully God And we'll see how that The implications that play out with that If you've got your Bible with you today You turn to Acts chapter 3 That's where we're going to be at Peter And John had been on their way to the temple. They were doing what they did. On the way to the temple, they see a a beggar off on the side as they're entering the gate. And he's wanting money. And they give him something he could have never planned for. They tell him to get up and walk. His legs are miraculously healed. The image is that they were twisted and gnarled, and they straightened out. That's the impression that the actual Greek gives us, that... you you saw them physically move from being gnarled and twisted up to straightened out and fixed. And obviously that caused a stir. I don't know if you've ever seen that in your life. I haven't. But I'm just going to assume that if I saw something like that, I'd want to hear something about what was going on. Well, that's what happened. And so these men and these people that were in the temple gathered around them. I shouldn't say it's just men. There's probably all kinds of women uh, there as well. Um, this, This crowd gathered around them And Peter's like, hey, what are you looking at us like we did something? And he begins to teach. We're going to pick it up in verse 12, just for some context. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. When he saw them all standing around them, when he was like looking around and he sees all these people Googling, Google-eyed over them and what they had just done, he addresses the people. Men of Israel. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now the intent of Peter's sermon and and the point that he eventually gets to and makes is that it's through Jesus that this miraculous work was done. This power came through the name of Jesus and that they weren't responsible for it other than that they were just being submissive and obedient to his call and his command. But as he's teaching them, in verse 14 and 15, that's really where we're going to camp out. He says three specific things about Jesus. He calls him three different things. Holy and righteous one and the author of life. And Peter wouldn't have said that. I mean, at some level, we recognize that he's full of the Spirit. The Spirit has fallen on them and has given them special power to do special things and at some level, we understand that, that Peter is, is being inspired by the Spirit, is speaking truth. But we can also see that this is something that Peter had believed. He had begun to believe. And I mean, it had ultimately changed his life. It gave him boldness and courage to, to meet the risen Savior. I mean, before Christ goes to the cross, he's denying him. At some level, slightly ashamed that he even knew him but after he meets the resurrected Lord, he's proclaiming his good, I mean, proclaiming his, his glory. So, so we see that Peter's changed and he's, he's got this position that he holds and believes. And as he says these words, he's implying certain things about Jesus. And that's what I want us to get to today. That's what I want us to think about today. And so we're going to look at his holiness, his righteousness, and him being the author of life. Holy. What does it mean to be holy? I mean, this this word I think is is oftentimes it's it's uh, we say it, you know, we sing it in songs, we it, it gets thrown around in Christian circles quite a bit. But I think a lot of us, it's kind of like the word Hallelujah and Hosanna, you know, when we sing them in songs, there's this spiritual feeling. Oh yeah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, you know, and we get this emotional rush when we think about it, but we don't really know what the word means. I mean. Maybe, maybe some of you do, but I would, I would venture a guess that not all of us really know what it means. Hosanna is the same way. We get excited. In fact, I don't know, is Hosanna a song we're singing today? Yeah. I thought I heard you guys practicing it. We sing this song, Hosanna, and, and, and it gives us this rush to say, Hosanna, Hosanna. But we don't really, really understand the definition or how that word, what that word really implies. And the same thing can be said, I think, about holiness or the word holy. What does it mean to be holy? We we use it. We get excited about it. We we understand it. It refers something to us about God. The word that's translated there is hagios. And what it really means is to be set apart, sacred, distinct, to be totally different. The idea here is that Especially when it's applied to God Is that he is altogether different than his creation Let me give you a, a real world application for this And, and see if it will help The idea the, the, There is a temple in India That is, uh, was built to the Hindu goddess Oh, I'm going to forget her name Let me look at it Sri Carnegie Sri Carnegie She was born in 1444 And somehow they've deified her And now they believe that she has been reincarnated as rats. And so there's these rats that just swarm all over this temple. But in India, they won't do anything about it. In fact, because they believe this to be her, they bring gifts and food so that the rats won't leave. These are sacred or holy rats. They're distinct from other rats because they believe them to be her. You know, it's not like you can just run downtown and grab a rat and bring it to the temple and say this is her. No, they've got a distinct group of rats, a sacred group of rats. They, they, They have special meaning. There's special connotations that go with it. The issue with the way they are ascribing their holiness is that they are the ones that define the holiness. They're the ones that define these rats to be sacred. So the reality is, is that these rats are only as sacred as they say they are. Because when we say, oh, this is a special thing, you know, say say I've got, uh, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, I I don't get tied to things a lot. I can't think of the word I want to use right now. What's the word I want to use? I'm not a sentimental person. Thank you very much. This is in my notes. It's so, this is free. You can learn something about me today. I'm not a sentimental person. I don't get caught up with stuff and I'm ready if, hey, if I don't want it, I just, I can throw it away. It doesn't mean much to me. But there's a level that this stuff is so special that, they, that they're willing to cling to it and they just want to ascribe something special to it. But the problem is, is that since they're the ones that ascribe that, that value or that, that weight or that, that special position in their life, it's only as special as they, they make it. It's only as special as they say it is. And see, we pull this idea of being sacred or holy set apart we, we pull that back distinct into Christian worldview and we have to go back to the word where God says that he's the one that's holy. He's the one that becomes the benchmark or the, the status symbol for holy, the, the, the measure for what's holy and what's not. His word tells us in Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 19 verse two, he says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel as he's about to give them the 10 commandments. Speak to all the congregation of of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God, am holy. Then he says in 1 Peter, Peter is kind of capturing that verse for the Christian movement. He says in 1 Peter 1.6, as he's writing to a church that's suffering, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, God is ascribing holiness to himself. He's this eternal God, this God that's completely and utterly separated, distinct from his creation the creation is subject to him, and whether we like to admit it or not, I mean, we, we recognized this last week as we talked about Jesus' divinity, whether we're going to recognize it or not, whether we're going to ascribe it to him or not, God has authority. He rules. He's sovereign. He's the one that gets to say how things are. He's completely and utterly distinct from his creation, completely and totally different, separated, set apart And so the Bible tells us that God says this about himself. Well, he becomes the measure for it. So then everything has to measure in holiness next to God. Everything in creation has to be measured against God's holiness. And the reality is that the Bible teaches us that we don't measure up. And whether the Indians would like it or not, those rats, they don't really measure up. The cows that they call sacred, that they would consider holy, they don't measure up. Because you can't compare them to God. You can't bring them into a place where God and them come to, to be on the same plane. They don't even belong in the same playing field. They, they, they're on different continents, you know. But the idea here is that God applies this holiness to himself, speaks about it of himself. And so the question then becomes, well, well is, is Peter really, is Peter looking at Jesus and saying, well, Jesus is God because He's holy. Is he really thinking all this through As he says this is he, is he really implying That Jesus is this holy God And I think that that's asking A little bit too much of the text I think that at some level that if, if we say that, that Peter is trying to make an argument For Jesus' divinity at this point I don't think it holds water But what I do think Is that because we know that Jesus Or, or that Peter already thinks That Jesus is God He's calling him holy Because he knows who God is See, he's not trying to prove Jesus' divinity. He's just pointing out the fact because Jesus is divine, he is holy, completely distinct, set apart, sacred. And when this word begins to be applied to God and to to Jesus, there's a connotation of purity with it. I mean, when we think of Jesus' holiness of God's holiness, it's not only just a distinction and being set apart from something, being different. There's an idea of purity. There's no evil in him. There's no no darkness in him. No shades of shifting shadow. He's who he is. That's That's how he introduced himself. That's how he named himself. I am who I am and everything else finds its identity and its position in comparison to me you see Jesus I think he's saying that Jesus is holy because he's God he's distinct he's sacred he's special because of his identity because of who he is but I also think he's speaking to his purity okay so why do I care Why do we care? Why does it matter that we know that Jesus was holy? Because he was sacred for a purpose. He was set apart for a purpose. He was told to come. He was sent to the Father for a reason. See, God didn't just make him sacred. It's not like God said, well, I'm going to send my son and put him in the flesh just because I can. He had a reason for coming. He had a purpose in coming. And so the idea is, is that this holiness, this sacredness, this, 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 this is being set apart to something. It's being set apart for something. And so I think Peter is really implying that, that Jesus has a mission, a mission that he's been sent of God for. So as, as we deal with that, at, at some level, it's, it's still just this idea, you know, it's just this idea floating around. And I still don't really feel like, hey, well, what did I do with that? Okay, so Jesus came for a reason. I know why Jesus came. He came to seek and save that which, which was lost. But why does it matter? Why does it matter that, that, that I understand he's holy? Because at some level, not at some level, directly, intentionally, he calls us to be holy. I just read you the verse a little bit ago from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. You know, this isn't Old Testament law. This isn't the priest speaking to the Israelites in their covenant. This is Peter standing and and, and writing to Christians, to people who were believers in God. And he says, because I am holy, you should be holy. You see, I think it's important for us to begin to understand the holiness of Jesus Christ because at some level it gives us a clue and an understanding of how to begin to carry out our lives. Peter opens this book, opens this letter to these Christians in 1 Peter. He opens that letter with this beautiful explanation of the gospel. This beautiful, this beautiful picture of what they have to look forward to. The amazing, lasting, eternal inheritance that they have waiting for them. These are people who are being killed because of what they believe. And he's calling them to, to find joy in what they have to look forward to. And he describes the work that Jesus has done in them And is doing for them And is building for their future And then he says Because of all that Because of what Jesus has done Because of who Jesus is Because of the work that he's doing in you Because of the gospel You do this So what does it mean for Jesus to be holy? That He's sacred, He's set apart, He's distinct. He lives a pure life. And at some level, we're called to that same thing. Not as if we're obeying a law, not as if we have a list of rules that we're striving to, to obey and to and, and to make ourselves righteous and, and ourselves or sinless in ourselves. But we are seeking to live in obedience to its commands that we're, we're seeking to, to live like He did. We're seeking to emulate Him. We're seeking to, to, to have our lives count for something other than ourselves. We recognize that what God has done in us sets us apart. You see, this is where it gets really practical. Because when we recognize that Jesus has been set apart by His Father, sanctified, given a job to do, given a purpose in this world, And we can begin to see that when he calls us holy, he's saying, this is what I've done for you. I've set you apart. And the Bible teaches us we aren't of this world. Our home, our home is in heaven. We're no longer here as as residents. We're aliens in this land, the Bible says, because he has taken hold of us and, and sanctified us cleansed us, made us his own, distinct from the rest of the world. So our life, the way our life looks should be distinct. It should be different. People should look at us and, and, and recognize a distinction. I, I stated last night to the leaders of our church if we can go to work, if we can go into the world and, and, and know people really well and they don't know that we're Christians, that signifies a problem because God has made us holy positionally. God has said, you're holy. But then he says, now live like it. Make choices to demonstrate it in your life. Not legalistically trying to measure up, but out of and motivated by what he's done because of what he's done. Our lives should be distinct. They should be seen as sacred, set apart for a purpose. And that's who Jesus was. And I believe that's what Peter was telling these people. That's what I believe he believed about Jesus. He didn't just say he was holy. He said he was righteous. (coughs) Excuse me. And the idea of being righteous, I mean, that's that's another one of those cool Christian words that we like to throw around and really not have an understanding of. It's kind of like the word prodigal. I don't know how many of you have read the book Prodigal God, but I know when we went through it as a church, over and over I heard, man, I I never knew the real definition of prodigal. We define prodigal based on what we know about the parable that Jesus told about this man with two sons. And we call it, we, we, we like to refer to it as the prodigal son. And so when we think about the prodigal son, we think about this son who ran off and and was wayward. And so that's kind of what our mind, that the idea that our mind develops for the word prodigal is the word is is wayward and kind of kind of going off the beaten path and doing things that aren't right. That's that's kind of the idea we get for it. But the way that prodigal is really defined is is one that spends recklessly or, or one that gives abundantly. And so Tim Keller writes this book, The Prodigal God, and he he reminds us that, yeah, that son, he, he took his inheritance and he spent it recklessly. And at some level, yeah, he was, he, he was wayward, but that's not really what that word means. He was spending recklessly. But the father, the father in that story, when the son comes back, gives abundantly and, and takes what's his and just pours blessing on this son that had spent so recklessly. And so he says that our God is a prodigal God. And so the reality is it's important for us to understand what it is to be righteous. And I think at some level we begin to think that this word simply means sinless. And and, and I think it does. But really when Peter's using this word, remember he's a Jew. He's an Israelite. He's raised with this this knowledge of the law. And, and, And really the context that he's speaking of, he's speaking to Jews. And what he's saying is that, I think what he's saying is that Jesus is righteous, meaning this. He's just. There's no breaking of the law in him. He's not a lawbreaker. In fact, in this context, when you go back to the context of the passage, in chapter 3, verse verse 14, he says that, let me find it. He says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He's, what he's saying is, you people who, are, who have accused him of blasphemy and sedition, because eventually, you know, blasphemy didn't work for Pilate. He didn't care if Jesus said he was God. He couldn't care less. But the thing that was finally nailed to the cross and the reason he was finally raised on the cross was because he claimed to be a king. So what he's doing is he's speaking to these Israelite people about Jesus not being a lawbreaker. In fact, the Bible teaches us that Jesus filled the law. And that's what this word righteous really entails. I'd say it for you, but I've, I've listened to it over and over and over, and I can't pronounce it right. So. But, it, but the Greek word really entails this idea of being just, in line with God's law. But wait a minute, we're a bunch of Gentiles. We, we weren't given the law to follow. It wasn't us. I mean, we're, we're, we're not the covenant people. But God's law, his righteousness, his holiness, his purity, this is important. When it looks on us, recognizes the fallenness in us. That in no way, in no way do we measure up to even the most basic of his laws. You see, because there is a a law that's outside of the Mosaic law. It's never been right for people to murder. Before the law was ever given, it was a sin for murder to happen. Before the law was ever given, God was always to be exalted and and worshipped above all other gods. Before the law was ever given, sin was killing people. And so there's this idea that this righteousness... This justness, this, this, this person who's not a lawbreaker. That's how we're called to. And none of us measure up. It's really a legal term. And Jesus is interesting. The irony of this passage is that Jesus is saying that you said he was a lawbreaker, but in doing so, you proved yourselves lawbreakers. You showed yourself to be lawbreakers. You're the one. Jesus is righteous. You see, the Bible teaches us that he fulfilled the law. And when we say that, we don't mean that he just simply came and was the perfect sacrifice. And so offering the perfect sacrifice fulfilled the law. You know what Jesus did beyond that? In his life, he lived in the law perfectly, he never sinned. Last week I taught you that Jesus was a human. And that, we can't, that, that it's dangerous to, to dehumanize him and to take away from him. But here's something that's distinct or different about Jesus and his humanity. He never sinned. He was righteous. He never broke a law. He never did anything wrong. There was no evil or no sin in him whatsoever. And so we have this one that's a holy and righteous One. And here's the beauty of it. We're broken and fallen. We're unholy and unrighteous. But because of who Jesus is, he can stand in our place. You see, because he fulfilled the law, he could offer the perfect sacrifice. But because he he fulfilled the law, he can stand and offer us what we can't get ourselves. You see, it's important that we recognize his righteousness because we need his righteousness. I mean, consider it, not only were the priests, the people who were, seen to be, who were seen to be and said to be righteous in that day, not only did they have problems, even the best in our time, even the best of what we consider to be the best in our time are screwing it up. Pastors, finding their hope in other things, committing suicide. Pastors, finding hope in other things and, and, and building their identity in, in other areas of life. Doing horrendous things like burning down a house and killing their family. Having relationships with women that aren't their wives. Some of them with men. The scary thing is, is that the church, in many cases, is looking on these things and accepting it. Pastors standing up in front of a church saying, I'm gay. And then the church standing up and saying, we support you, we love you. We're broken. We do not fit God's design. And if Jesus, the holy, the pure, the the set apart, the sacred one, the righteous one who fulfilled the law, who lived up to the law, who provided what, what nothing else in this world could, came and he says, he says, here, here's my righteousness. Let me take from you your sin and brokenness. No other person could have done this. No other man could have done this. That's why it's so important that we recognize his divinity and his humanity. Because it wouldn't have worked any other way. We would have had no hope in any other way. God had to come. In his holiness, in his purity, in his distinctness, in in being set apart, in being totally different than what he'd created. He had to be the one that came. And in being the only one that could live and fulfill the law in his life and practice, and in his sacrificial act on the cross. He's the only one that could have offered this great exchange. He's the only one that could have ever said, Here's my righteousness. Let me have your brokenness. I take from you your sin and I give you my, 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 my righteousness, my, my good, my, my perfection, my sinlessness. He's the only one that could have done that. And so to answer Marcus Borg in saying that they deny his sacrificial death. Well, what hope do we have? What, 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 what do we have to look forward to? What can we, what can we hope in? What, we, what, can we, what can we plan on? What can we desire? How can this ever make sense? If you take away God coming and putting on flesh and living this holy, sanctified, set-apart, distinct life and doing it righteously. What was it all for? If not to go to the cross. If not to offer the sacrifice. And he also calls him the author of life. And you know, that's kind of self-explanatory in a sense. I mean, he's the one that really put it together, right? In, in Christ, <coughs> excuse me, in Christ, we see that life comes through him. John 1, as he's opening up his gospel, he says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. In Jesus is life. But this wouldn't be true if he weren't holy and righteous. If he was just any other man, if he, if he had two parents, that's another thing Marcus Borg and his group like to say. That he was born of a man and a woman, that his mother wasn't a virgin. If he had two parents, he'd be just like us. There'd be nothing holy or distinct about him. He wouldn't be righteous. And in him, there would be no life. But because of his identity, because of who he was, in him is life. As the author of life, we recognize that it's through him. It's through his work that it's all possible. As he, the righteous one, the holy one, makes that sacrifice in our place for our sins. And I think that it also entails that he governs over it. (coughs) I mean, we don't don't look at a book and, and say, well... You know, I think you should tell the author to write it this way. In fact, here's a here's a pretty interesting illustration about this. A few years ago, after all the Harry Potter books were done, and they were all written, and they were out, and they you know they were all bestsellers, and just people loved them. And now people are eating up the movies. The lady who wrote them, I can't even think of her name right now. The lady who writes them has an interview, and decides that she's going to tell people Gandalf's gay. Well, she's the author of the book, so I guess she knew Gandalf better than the rest of us, right? Yeah, Dun- Dumbledore, sorry. It just goes to show you how, how much I know about that. Gandalf. <laughs> what's he from? Lord of the Rings. That's right. All right, see? should start studying my Bible less and maybe, no, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but nobody, nobody goes up to her and says, ah, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. Because she's really the one that wrote him. She knows in her mind. It's kind of silly that it came after the fact, you know, and maybe she didn't want to do that because she didn't want to make Christians matter than they already were about her books. You know, I I don't know. I'm not sure what the idea was. But the thing is, we don't argue with her over it, right? I mean, she's, she's the one that wrote the books. Jesus is the author of life. He's the one that gets to say who is and who isn't. In fact, in Luke 9, Jesus is of teaching about this cost of discipleship. And he comes to this place. Let me just read you some context so that you can hear what he says. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he's not teaching about his salvation by works. He's not saying that you can do enough good things to earn life. But he's demonstrating to these people that, hey, if there's things that that you're sold to and that you long for and you want more than me, then it's an indicator that you're not really mine. You don't really belong to me. He then says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And see, the whole idea there is that Jesus is the one that looks at a person and knows. He's the one that gets to say who is and isn't. He's the one that's going to be the judge. And for those that are ashamed and for those that he looks at and knows are not his, that's what they'll be called. But he's the author of life. So he's the one with the authority of life. And it really, when you put it all together, when you put these three attributes or these three things together, they really begin to make sense. It's because of who Jesus is that he is the author of life. He's God in flesh. Holy, distinct, set apart, sacred, special, worthy to be worshipped, worthy to be adored. Something to be considered. Something to be focused on. (laughs) Something to be thought about. Something that we should spend our time meditating on. Considering. I mean, we we could follow the example of these Indians who look at these rats and give their life to feeding the rats, you know. Man, they're stinking rats. We're talking about the God who created the world. Holy. set apart, distinct. He's righteous, the fulfiller of the law, the one who lived it perfectly, whose life in it was no sin. And who came and provided for us life. And he says all you have to do to experience it, to receive it, to to be in it, to gain it, is believe in me, not me, him. Trust him, him alone. It's why he can say, I am the way. It's why he can say that he is the only way and that in him is life. It's why he can say that if, you've, if you don't trust in me, then you don't have life. Those aren't our words, There he is. It's because of who he is because of who he's shown himself to be. It's because of that that he can then say, in me is life. How do we respond? How do we deal with this? How does this practically change how we act in the world? is Is it just a systematic theology? Is it just a point of doctrine? Do we just chalk it up to our brains and say, oh, got something else to think about? I don't think so. I think the initial response that, that Scripture does call us to is faith. But, you know, faith, that's, that's just another thing that we just throw that word around as if it's oh, just, just know it, you know, just believe it. But faith is something more than just having this intellectual ascent or this intellectual knowledge about something. Real faith is about trusting it so much that you move on it, that you make decisions based on it. Every one of you believed you could sit in those chairs and not fall out on the floor, so you sat right down. You acted on something you knew. That's faith. Trusting that Jesus is the only way and making decisions in life based on that. That's the thing. That's the initial response that Scripture calls us to. But as we've seen in the Scripture today, it also calls us to live holy as He is holy. To live a distinct life. Look at your life. Look at the things that... that, that you, the things you spend your time with, the things you spend your money on, the things that you really spend time just giving your thought to. How often is He part of your thoughts? How often is He part of your meditation? How often is He the motivation for how you do things? He calls us to be holy as He is holy. He's done the work to put us there. Positionally, we're in that place of holiness. Now he says, act like it. Act like it. Do this. You're righteous. Obviously, we're going to screw up. We're going to break the law. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. But the pattern of our life should be one that's marked by repentance, striving not to. Striving not to live in sin. Striving in, 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 in the best ways that we can. Trusting in His power, trusting in His Spirit alive in us to enable us to this, to live a righteous life. Knowing that in His grace, it will never measure up, but that when God looks at us, instead of being detested, He sees us white and washed because of the sacrifice of His Son. How do we respond? How are you going to respond? What are you going to do in light of knowing who Jesus is? It's pretty basic. Let's pray. Father, I know that these lessons, these last two weeks have been basics of Christianity and understanding who you are. I know that these are probably messages we've all heard before. I know that, that uh, things that maybe we've thought about over and over, but I know also in my own life and in all of our lives that we struggle with remembering how special your son is and that we give our th- our, ourselves to all kinds of things other than him and we, got, we get caught up in all kinds of things in this world other than him would you just remind us remind us of how beautiful how special how sacred he is would you remind us of how desperately we need him to be that person Would you remind us of his perfect life? Would you remind us of of the truth that that he lived without sin? He who knew no sin became sin. And because of that, we have hope. Would you teach us? Help us to remember what your word teaches about your son, that when we come across things like like, like the silliness of the Jesus seminar, that we would know not because we were taught it once, but because we know your word and what it says about who your son is and what he's done. That we would look at it feel pity for the people that think it, follow it, duped by it but that we'd be able to see the error in it. Father, I pray that as we do this, it's not just building a a, a people that like to have knowledge and are intellectual alone, but that this idea of theology leads us to doxology, that it leads us to your worship, to awe, to a greater awe and, and adoration for you. A lifestyle of gratitude for all that you are and all that you've done. That we get to know you. Even these fundamental lessons work that in us, Father. Teach us, shape us, cleanse us, correct the error, and show us the proper way. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how you need to respond today. I don't know what the Lord might be doing in you today. I'd ask you just to consider it. Think about maybe wrong views of Christ that you've had. Repent. Turn to what the Scripture teaches. Mold yourself to it. It has authority. Maybe it's just something that you're recognizing sin in your life that you need to repent of. You're, You're recognizing that at some level you are... You've got an idol in your life that you need to turn from and and return to Christ. You know, it could be your work. It could be something as noble as your family. But at some level, you've allowed something to be placed in front of him. He's the holy and righteous one. He's the only one that deserves to be in that place. Whatever you need to do, I'd say as we sing and worship, that, that I would encourage you to consider it and respond as he leads.